we're, we're back in the end game. And so we, we've been in a series, the longest series we've ever done as a church. Uh, but we're in this series called The End Game. And if it's your first time here or you picked up during Easter, we took two weeks off to just celebrate Easter as a church. But we're getting back into End Game. And we only have a few more weeks left. Um, but this series is about the end times. This series is about the, the detailed teachings of Jesus uh, that we see in Matthew 24, 25, the teachings throughout the New Testament, and then specifically in the book of Revelation, we're looking at uh, all of the, the future history, the details that Jesus gives us about the end times. And over the last 2,000 years, every single thing that Jesus said would happen, and not only every single thing that Jesus said would happen, but the way that Jesus said it would happen has taken place. The stage has been set exactly the way that Jesus said that it would. And there are so many scriptures, many of which we've covered already in this series, so many scriptures that simply did not make sense until history caught up with the accuracy of the Bible. And so over the last few years, 10 to 15 years, we have seen some incredible things play out in our world and in our life. And I believe that this series is one of the most uh, dominant and serious series that we could do as a church. I've studied and prepped for two years for this, and I wanted to preach it for over a year. But every time I got to that point, I thought, the Lord, there just wasn't peace yet. And then this year, I don't think it's a coincidence, because if you look out into the world and you see what is happening all over the, the world stage the things that, that the Bible says the direction governments will go, the direction culture will go, and the direction the nations will go, the direction economics will go. Every single thing that is written in detail in Scripture has been happening and is happening before our very eyes. Amen? And so I don't think that it's a coincidence that God has opened up this time for us as a church family to go through this. Uh, and we're in message eight. We're in end, time part, end game part eight today. And I want to give you a disclaimer. I want to give you a little warning. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of information today, but it's not a lot of different information. There's two things that we're going to look at. And I, I want to remind you what the book of Revelation is, the majority of the book of Revelation. It is a look at future history. There are two primary things happening in the book of Revelation and it is details of the seven-year tribulation. The seven-year tribulation is a time period at which uh, the Antichrist, this one world leader, will come to power and will rule over the world. And simultaneous, while that is happening, God is allowing judgment to be poured out on the earth and then in the end pouring his wrath out on the earth and on the Antichrist and all evil and all wickedness. And the book of Revelation is giving us the two primary phases of the tribulation, the first half of the tribulation and the second half of the tribulation that leads all the way up to the second coming of Christ. And so I want to remind everybody that the tribulation begins when the Antichrist, when this one world leader who will come onto the scene along with 10 other nations will make a covenant or a treaty with Israel and with many other nations. And when this, uh, this, this covenant, which uh, seemingly affects most of the world, takes place, that is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. 
We know that in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist, this one world leader, he walks into the temple in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and he declares himself God over every other God, and he breaks the covenant, whatever the, the, the rules of the covenant were. He breaks the covenant three and a half year mark. And he does the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes destruction. And then for the second three and a half years, God pours out his wrath. If, you ever, if, you, if you're not aware, if you've never made the connection, uh, multiple times in scripture, they call this moment the abomination that causes desolation, this thing that the Antichrist does and the world's response to it is an abomination that causes destruction. Because of what happens at that three and a half year mark and the world's response to it, the Lord pours out genuine wrath on the earth. And eventually that culminates with the second coming of Christ in which at the end of the seven years, he destroys the Antichrist and every ounce of evil and wicked in the world. That's the seven years. Revelation is giving us uh, the two phases of God's judgment and wrath. The first one are the seven seals. It's John sees a vision of a parchment, uh, written, uh, written parchment with seven seals. If you know anything about it, they would, they would write, then they would roll up a parchment, and then they would seal it. And, there, and in this case, in the vision, there were seven seals. And each seal that is opened by Jesus, there's another piece of future history that is given to us that comes through the first phase of the tribulation. And then in the second half, which we haven't got to, but we will soon in the series, is known as the seven trumpets. So John sees another vision where there's angels blowing trumpets, and each time they blow a trumpet, it, it, it brings about another act of judgment or wrath that comes upon the earth. And the last three trumpets are known as the three woes, and they are significantly horrible and worse than anything else the world has ever experienced. But while this is going on, Revelation also gives us some parenthetical information, meaning things that are happening within and around the world during the tribulation that's disconnected from the seven seals and the seven trumpets or the wrath of God, like the rise of the Antichrist, the installation of a one-world government, a one-world economic system. Uh, he, there, he introduces some, some major players that, that represent God and the gospel, which we'll talk about today uh, in a series of other things that take place. And so where we left off with, and I'm just trying to catch everybody back up because it's been a couple weeks, where we left off was with the first five seals. So John has a vision. He sees this parchment. There's seven seals, and each time a seal is unlocked or opened by Jesus, we see another piece of future history. The thing that I want you to know about this first half of, of, of the tribulation, this first half of the seven seals, the first five, is everything that we see is because of the rule of the Antichrist on the earth. It's what, it's what some theologians call the passive wrath of God. God's not actually doing anything to the earth. What he's doing is he's lifting his hand. Thessalonians says that he removes the restrainer from the earth. He lifts his hand from the earth. And in the culture, in the world, and the nations who have rejected the truth and have chosen a path of wickedness, when God removes his hand, wickedness fully takes over and the world experiences what happens when evil reigns without the restraining force of a good God. 
And that's the first five seals. So when you see the, the, the peace treaty, the covenant, that's a lie. You see the significant amount of wars, the famines that probably come from the wars, the plagues uh, that come from that. And then the martyrs, that there's, there's millions of people dying for their faith in Christ uh, in this moment. All of that is because of the rule of the Antichrist. But then the sixth seal, and the reason we want to focus on this today, during the sixth seal in Revelations chapter 6, verse 12, this seal changes everything. It changes everything. The atmosphere in the tribulation, the atmosphere in the world dramatically shifts from this moment on. And, and as we get into this in a minute, I, I really want you to just understand, and I know that this is in the, here's my disclaimer. There's a lot of information that's coming, but it's not a lot of different information. And there's really only one primary point that we can all gather from that will deeply affect or should deeply affect our day-to-day -day lives today. And so when I read this sixth seal, I want you to understand this is the first time that God really speaks significantly loudly through nature to the world during the tribulation. Up to this point, God's not necessarily silent, but it's the Antichrist has risen to power, the, the Ten Nation Alliance has come onto the scene, uh, their Babylon is killing Christians, there, there's, the, there's this, a lot of war and military power. People are in awe of the Antichrist. They're, they're, they're beginning to, to follow him, even worship him. And then all of a sudden, the sixth seal takes place and everything shifts and everything changes. And now no one was uttering, you know, discussing God, talking about God. But then all of a sudden, the whole world is very aware of the God in heaven, very aware of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And I want us to understand what is happening in and around the world around the time of this sixth seal so that we can make sense of the, the atmosphere in the world so that we can understand the weight of this. And in this, we will see the goodness, the love, and the mercy of God never fails, and he never quits giving opportunity for the lost to be saved. So I want to read this sixth seal, uh, and, and, um, and if this is your first time here, if you haven't heard any part of the series, I know that this first part, you may be a little lost in it, but there's still significant value for you It's significant in the middle part. So I just want you to just hold on to that. And if it is your first time, go back and watch all of them. Uh, I think they're pretty good. I think they're pretty good. I think they'll add value to your life. This is the sixth seal, Revelation 6. Well, thanks for two, two people agree. That's good. I love you guys. I mean, I don't want to be a punk and be like, they're the best series in the world. You know what I mean? Like that. God's word is powerful. As long as I stay out of the way and let the word speak, it's always going to change lives. Revelation 6, verse 12. This is the sixth seal. When I saw the lamb open the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black like sackcloth of goat hair. That's just Bible language for saying extremely black and dark, okay? Don't, don't get lost in the goat hair, okay? <laughs> I, know there's not, I know there's not a lot of goat farmers these days, but it just is, it's extremely dark, and I'll explain that in a minute. And the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth like unripe figs dropping from a tree shaken by a great wind. The sky receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. 
So I want you to understand the four significant things that are happening here. The very first and most obvious is there's a significant earthquake so massive that it shakes the entire world and impacts the entire world. So this is what, up to this point, the Antichrist is rising to power almost unabated. Um, the world is just in awe of him and all the things that he's saying. If you remember from the previous series, the Antichrist very early on, is, he is pointing very early on. It's a very spiritual, very religious rise to power. Before he points to himself as God, he's crediting Satan as God, though he probably doesn't go by that name. But people are in awe of him and in awe of his God. So from early on, this is a spiritual battle. And that when the false prophet shows up and he's performing his miracles and he's getting people to begin to see the Antichrist as God and this one world leader as God and beginning to get the world to worship him, all of this stuff is, is starting to happen and it happened worldwide. And up to this point, there hasn't been a, necessarily a response from God, our God, the true God in heaven until this moment. This earthquake shakes the entire world. Now, I don't want to give you my opinion, but I, I do believe that there's scriptural evidence that this probably lines up with something significant in the world. I don't think this earthquake is going to be random. Every other earthquake that we kind of see, like the earthquake when Jesus Christ died, it shook the earth so much, the clouds went dark or the sun went dark in the middle of the day, and it was so powerful that even the Roman soldiers who just killed Jesus bowed down and confessed him being the son of God. So this earthquake is going to coincide, I believe, with something dramatic on the earth. The next thing that happens, there's a solar and lunar eclipse uh, that, that makes the, the, the moon go blood red. So it's just space is speaking. God's speaking through these visuals. Also, the blackness of the atmosphere, an earthquake of this size. I don't know if you've ever seen a volcano, a violent volcano erupt uh, or seen that in person or on video, but an earthquake of this size would cause those uh, fault lines to shift and, and the earth's crust to break open and, and volcanoes that we already know of that would, would explode and the, the darkness of the dust would black out the sun in many areas of the world for days on end. And then there's a, what we would just more than likely is just a meteor shower. That word star uh, in, in the Greek is, is a word for just any celestial body. So it, it could be meteor, it could be the stars, it could be a comet, it could be asteroid. It could, it's probably just a meteor shower of significance that again just speaks uh, from heaven that, that God is, is definitely God. And there, the terror from these this earthquake and, and the solar and lunar eclipse and the blackness of the sun and the meteor shower, the terror is so great, the whole world begins to acknowledge God. And I, I wanna show you this, and this is why I call the sixth seal the great transition. Because up to this point, there, the whole world is enamored with the Antichrist and with his God and with seeing him as God. But now, after this, this great significant earthquake and these signs from heaven that happen almost simultaneously or back to back to back, they speak from heaven in a way that the whole world knows 
that it's God who is doing this. In Revelation 6, 15, it says this, then the kings of the earth, the nobles and the commanders, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and free man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to withstand it. So the whole world, and this is so important, the whole world recognizes and realizes that this earthquake and what just happened was God, who we call God and the Lamb Jesus. The thing that we have to remember, though, and this is what I think gets so ignored in conversations on the tribulation, conversations on the end times, and the direction that life will go, governments, economics, and religion will go in this world, is that in Thessalonians specifically, it says this multiple places throughout Scripture, but in Thessalonians it says it is, is detailed and specifically with great clarity that because the world and the nations and the culture rejected the truth of Jesus Christ, a great delusion was sent on the world during the days of the Antichrist. So I want you to understand that when the Antichrist rises to power, he it's a very spiritual rise. The first thing that disappears is atheism, all right? It took us thousands and thousands of years as a people to grow so stupid to be an atheist. And I mean that offensively because it is, it is the most ignorant of all beliefs to look at this world, to exist in this world, and to think that God did not create it, to think that, that some nothingness came to somethingness, and then the somethingness eventually became rocks, and then some smudge mixed with the rocks, water mixed with the rocks, and then it became smudge, and the smudge became the life, and then the smudge that came to life began to grow, and somewhere it became an ape, and then somewhere it became us. Even though the father of this theory said that we should find over the next hundred years with all of our technology, this is Darwin, we should find thousands and thousands of remains of these middle creatures of which we have found none. Darwin weighed out three different theories uh, that if, if this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen, if none of these happen in the next hundred years, I'm wrong. None of them have happened. None of them have happened. So when I say it took thousands of years for humanity to grow stupid enough to stop believing in God, I mean every single word of that. And what will be evident in the tribulation is the rise of spirituality because the Antichrist will be pointing from the day he comes to power, even before the tribulation, he's already pointing to his God, who we know to be Satan, though it might not be that name. And then God begins to speak very definitively from heaven here in the sixth seal. And now everybody in the earth has to decide and have to choose between Satan, the Antichrist, and the God of heaven and the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So I want you to understand this. What I also need us to understand, and this is the part where I wanna, I wanna introduce to us three different major groups of players that God sends into the earth during the tribulation. And I know that this is a lot, but these three, they're all serving the same purpose. And I really want you to understand that, that during the atmosphere of the tribulation, that it is not just the Antichrist on a home run streak. The Antichrist, he never really gets going because of the goodness and the greatness of God and the people that God put on this earth. So I want you to see this. Where there's three people that are introduced to us, and we know, we don't know exactly when they come onto the scene, 
But we know because of, of, of scriptural truths in Revelation that every single one of the people that we talk about today, they start their ministry at a minimum prior to that three and a half year mark when the abomination of desolation, they start in the first half of the tribulation. We know that. We don't know exactly when they start and we don't know exactly when they end, but we do know that they're all simultaneously working at some point in the beginning of the tribulation. And so I want to introduce these, these people to you. The reason it's important that we understand this is there is a reason why when the earth shakes and the sky goes dark that everybody recognizes that it's God. The delusion will be, the deceit will be when the Antichrist rises up to power and he calls Satan God or whatever name he gives him and he then he declares himself God, he will point to the God of the Bible and to Jesus as to being the bad guys and the evil ones. So all throughout Revelation, as God's doing things and trying to bring them into salvation and trying to bring judgment on them to draw them in, they continually are aware that it's God, yell at God, get mad at God, hate God, don't repent, and continue to be sinful and wicked and follow the Antichrist. So everybody on earth is aware of the Antichrist and his God, and then aware of God and the Lamb, Jesus. But because of the great delusion, many, 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 knowing Jesus, knowing God, they still reject him and choose to follow the Antichrist. And I want to show you and prove to you why that is true. This is Revelation 7, and he introduces what I'm going to call the 144,000 sealed preachers. In uh, Revelation 7, it says this, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back its four winds, so that no wind would blow on land or sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east with the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the foreheads of the servants of our God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So later on, there's another discussion on the 144,000. And I want you to know who these men are. It's 144,000 men. And the Bible says that they never laid with women, that they had no deceit in their mouth, that from the day that they were born, that they were saved by Jesus Christ and they solely gave their life and their heart and their mind over to the cause of Christ. That these, these men of God, like John the Baptist, they spent the vast majority of their life in the wilderness alone with God, alone with his spirit to be brought out in this very moment in history to flip the world upside down. I want you to, I think throughout history, there are, there are a few men and a few women of God who we can look at and we know in the last few generations that they were totally and utterly sold out to God and that they lived their life in such a manner and were completely, their life was solely about the cause of Christ. And anytime the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a willing vessel, gets a hold of a man or a woman of God who is willing to go and serve whatever path he has for them, literally revival breaks out in and around them. And there are a few who do significant things. I mean, think Billy Graham, who, who ch ch changed the world. 
There's different men and women of God throughout history. When God gets a hold of somebody and they give their lives over, it's just, it's insanity what happens and what takes place. So I want you to imagine 144,000 John the Baptist, 144,000 Billy Grahams, 144,000 Elijahs, 144,000 men who were absolutely, utterly sold out to the cause of Christ. And then when God opens them up and moves them into the earth at this time in history, they begin to preach with such a power and such an authority that it brings about the largest revival in history. That right after they're introduced, uh, we see a thing that, that the Bible calls the great multitude and later in Revelation 7. And in the great multitude, it says that there are a countless people that cannot be counted from every tribe, every nation, and every culture all over the earth. And when asked what this was, he says, these are the ones who are in the Greek. It says, these are the ones who are continually coming out of the tribulation. That God, even in the tribulation, that God, even in the height of evil and power, even in the height of wickedness, that God still secured 144,000 sold out men of God, filled with the spirit of God, living solely for the cause of Christ, and that they begin to preach in Israel and the Middle East and probably all over the world to the point that millions and millions of people during the tribulation give their lives to Christ. The reason why when the earth shook and the cloud went dark and the, the sun went dark and there was a lunar eclipse and meteors fell, the reason that they knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that it was God was because of the preaching of the 144,000. There's two big things that we can see from this. The first one is that I need you to understand that, that the 144,000 God secures and brings about to replace us because we are gone. The mission that we see them in their life is the mission that we have right now in our lives. That this is what Jesus says of you and me, that we are the light of the world in this darkness, that we are the city on a hill, that we are the salt of the earth, that you and me have a power inside of us, that if we could just align ourselves with the will of the Father and that we would live our lives for the cause of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God would bring about salvation and revival in and around our lives, that what we get to see the 144,000 do, know that we have the opportunity to do that and be a part of that right here and right now. The reason why they're there is because we have already been taken. What I need us to understand is that when there's 144,000 people sold out for Jesus Christ, even in the tribulation, millions and millions and millions of people came to Christ. Early in the church, there were 12 men who were sold out to God and they flipped the world upside down. I'm telling you right here and right now, the Holy Spirit is always trying to save the lost and is always trying to move. The question mark is not the power of God, the mission of God, or the purpose of God. The question mark is, are we willing to be the vessels to flip the world upside down? That's the heart of who we are. That's the reason we're on this earth. That's the reason we're in this life. And I know, I know how easy it is to get distracted. I know how easy it is to get lost in the culture and to live for the temporary things. I know that. I don't, I don't want to present myself as a John the Baptist or someone like this. I struggle with the same things you struggle with. I struggle with still giving parts of my heart and my mind and my soul to this world and to this culture. But I am telling you what I know about the Holy Spirit and what I know about living for God 
is there is no greater adventure in all of the earth. The reason why we are so bored out of our minds is because we were not designed to build little kingdoms in this earth. We were designed to advance the kingdom of God on this earth. And when we are in line with him, not only will power run through our veins and we get to be a part of a great adventure, but we live every second of our life with joy and with peace and with power. I want, I want the church, uh, I want the church to be the church. I want the church to do the things that Christ says that we, we should do. And I, I, there is an image here for us that we can see. We get to see what happens when 144,000 people are completely sold out for Jesus. Now, there's over 8 billion people in the world. There might be even more by then. And 144,000 flip it upside down. I want to be a part of that, amen? I want to be a part of that. Besides the 144,000, and the, thing that, the second thing I want you to see as we go through these scriptures is that God never stops reaching out to the lost. He never stops calling them home. He never stops giving them truth. He's got the 144, and then he's got the two witnesses. I'm going to read through this quickly. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff. And I, just, I don't want you to get lost in some of the imagery here. I don't want you to get lost. And I'm going to go through this fast, and I just want to give you the point. Then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Do not measure it because it has been given over to the nations and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will empower my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. So we know that they minister to the earth in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically, for three and a half years. These witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. In this way, anyone who wants to harm them must be killed. These witnesses have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall during the days of their prophecy and power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. They are awesome. They are out of this world, incredible. And early on, people try to kill them, and they realize really quickly that's not happening. A lot of people say this is Elijah and Moses. I don't know that to be true. I don't know that to be true. But the reason they go that direction is because the things that are mentioned Elijah and Moses did while they were alive on the earth. Uh, there were multiple times people tried to come kill Elijah and Elisha, and one of the times uh, he just called some fire down from heaven and it just killed him. <laughs> And then another little army came and he called fire down from heaven and killed them. And the third one was like, bro, listen, here, here's the deal. King's making me come. I don't want to be here. Please do not call me, call fire down from heaven and kill me. Please, please spare me. Because of his humility, Elijah let him live. The thing that I want you to understand is that God gives them substantial supernatural power. This is why I want you to understand the culture uh, and the, I mean, the atmosphere of the tribulation, the antichrist, and the false teachers and the false prophet, they're all doing supernatural things to get the world's attention. And while they're doing that, these three, I mean, these two men for three and a half years are standing right in the middle of Jerusalem and they're watching, the whole world is watching them as they testify the goodness of God and the gospel. And it says that they bring down torment and plagues all over the world and everybody wants them to die. 
but they try, but they can't do it. After three and a half years, though, in verse seven, it says the two witnesses have finished their testimony. The beast that comes up from the abyss will wage war with them, will overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was also crucified. That's Jerusalem. For three and a half days, all peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will view their bodies and will not permit them to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate and send one another gifts because these two prophets had tormented them. So for three and a half days, the whole world is watching their dead bodies. And for just a second, there's some hope in, in all of these wicked people that they, they've made the right decision. They've chose the Antichrist as God and he overpowered these two powerful prophets. So he must be God. He must be the king. And for three and a half days, they celebrated. For three and a half days, they gave each other gifts. For three and a half days, they watched their bodies on TV in Jerusalem. This is one of those scriptures that proves the Bible to me. For a couple thousand years, people tried to make sense of this scripture. How could the whole world see them? Till satellites and TV showed up, it wasn't possible. But the whole world watches them, celebrates, and then suddenly, in verse 11, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered the two witnesses. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. And the witnesses heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 were killed in the quake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming shortly. That's one of the reasons we know because of that timing there. We know that it started prior to the three and a half years. So I want you to understand the goodness of God in this. God wasn't going to let just the Antichrist put on a show. God wanted to make sure that the people of the world had every opportunity to turn to him. So not only did they have the 144,000, but he had these two witnesses who were performing great acts of power. And then the enemy, the Antichrist, killed them. And for three and a half days, the world watched and they celebrated. We've made the right decision. We chose the right God. And then right when they were just, I mean, can you imagine just like you think it's like the clock's counting down in some, whatever sport you love, and at the last second, your team loses? It's horrible. That's what happens. And then God raises them to life and then calls them to heaven in front of them. This is God's goodness and mercy to all these wicked people who are celebrating the death of these two prophets of God. Yet God calls them, raises them to life in view of everyone and calls them to heaven in view of everyone in hopes that they would turn and repent and give glory to God. God was always trying to save the people of this world, even up into this very moment. You got the 144,000 and you got the two witnesses. And then we're introduced in Revelation 14 to another group. I'm gonna call these the three preaching angels. Then I saw another angel flying overhead with the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God, and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So though for 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit through the church, through the ecclesia, the gathering of, of uh, you and me, preached the gospel to this world and this world rejected Christ and rejected the gospel and now they're in the tribulation 
and God's still sending an angel. Now, we don't know whether it's a, well, he looks like an angel because in the Old Testament, sometimes when they showed up, they looked like terrifying angels. And sometimes when they showed up, they looked just like men. We don't know how they come. But what we know is, is that in God's goodness, in God's mercy, in God's love for even the most wicked of people, even in the tribulation, even in the, the, the weight of wrath and judgment being poured out, he sends an angel to preach the gospel all over the world along with the 144,000 and the two witnesses. Then John sees a second angel. There's a lot in this, and I don't have time to go into detail today. I recommend, if you don't know what I'm talking about in this, go back and listen uh, to the last message and to the podcast I put out. This is about Babylon, this other nation. Then a second angel, Revelation 14, 8, then a second angel followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great who has made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. So what we know is that in the tribulation, there's another very powerful nation that's very influential, that's known for extreme luxury and wealth, and that's also known for extreme brutal sexual immorality, that this other nation is, is called Mystery Babylon, is, is symbolically, that the Antichrist and the 10 nations that rise up with the Antichrist hate Babylon, and in the middle of the tribulation or near the end of the tribulation, the Antichrist and his military actually destroys Babylon. So early on, God sends an angel to prophesy the destruction of Babylon. And in the details in Revelation, there is a call for people to leave Babylon and to get out of Babylon because of the destruction that they'll face. And so what I want you to see in this and this is, what I, I, again, I want you to just see the mercy of God and the love of God in this. Babylon is described as the most wicked nation to ever live. It says that they found within it the, the blood of the saints. They're responsible for killing millions of Christians. Yet in that, God still sends people to offer them salvation. That is a merciful God. That's a merciful God. And it seems that from the timing of this, that that ain't there's there prophesying for years and years. So I want you to see the goodness of God in that. There's a third angel. And a third angel followed him, calling out in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image, that's the Antichrist, and the image that they set up to worship him with, and receives its mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink the wine of God's anger poured undiluted into the cup of his wrath, and he will be tormented in fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, day and night. There is no rest for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. So as the Antichrist is rising to power and calling the world to worship him, God is sending angels to beg the people, don't do it. God's goodness never ends. His mercy never ends. His love for the lost never, ever ends. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we serve. He's never gonna give up. Up until the very last moment, the witness, the two witnesses die between the second and the third woe. The third woe is the last one. So God has his people proclaiming his gospel and his truth 
down to the very last second. And there are millions of people, millions of people who repent and give their lives to Jesus and die in the tribulation for their faith and they go to heaven and they're together forever with God. But so many others don't. And so God waits until the very last second, all the way up until Christ's return. The final judgment is Christ returning to the earth and destroying all the wicked and evil ones who rejected all of the truths that they've heard through the last 2,000 years and through these crazy, powerful ways in the tribulation. So the heart of this today, I want you to understand, is I want you to see God's mercy and God's love never ends. He's never stopping going after people. How does this affect you and me today? Because this is the heart of our Father. This is the heart of the Lamb. This is the heart of Jesus. And this is the mission that he has given you and me. He never gives up. He never stops reaching out to the lost. He never stops shining the light in this dark world. Never. And that's the mission and that's the purpose of God on this earth today. And not only have we been saved from our sins and saved to the family of God, we have been saved to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God's purpose on this earth is to advance through its people. And I need you to know, and I think sometimes we think, well, you know, Pastor Jordan, he's called to go out and change the world. That's not my calling. Ephesians 4 tells me my calling. My calling is to preach the truth and the word of God to you and equip you to go out and change the world. That's what the Bible says. That's the heart of what the Bible says. And so I want, I want you to hear me. This should be the perspective and the lens at which we see life through. What we see marriage through, how we see raising families, what we see our job, our social circles, going to the grocery store, pumping gas at the gas station, that the Spirit of God is inside of us and is always desiring to move in us and through us to advance the kingdom and to save the lost. The more willing we become, the more powerful He'll move in us. I want to be a part of that. Amen? Come on, let's give God glory.